You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. So why don't we get our Bibles out and let's jump into a Bible study. You're going to want to find your way to Matthew chapter 18 as we enter in a new chapter today in the book of Matthew as we go through verse by verse um, through the book of Matthew. The title of the message this morning is the privilege of being a child of God. The privilege of being a child of God. I would like you to think of something before we get started. Um, Maybe even take a moment to just jot some thoughts down. What did God have in mind when he called you to himself? You see, we believe, uh, the Bible teaches, that God had a plan when he created you. That he knew you before he created you. And that he fashioned you with the gifts and the abilities that you have. And he did so because he wanted to have a relationship with you. And in that relationship with you, he wanted to do life with you. And he has a ministry path, a a journey that he wants you to be on, being part of his kingdom, being a builder in his kingdom. And I would like you to ponder for a moment just for you. Just between you and the Lord right now, think for a moment, what was on God's heart when he had the idea to create you? And what does he want to do with you? I believe God is so sovereign, God is so powerful. That he literally has specific plans and purposes for you. The Apostle Paul would write of it. He would talk of it. He would say that I might lay hold. Excuse me. That I might lay hold of all that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. What's he saying? He's saying I realize that my life is not my own. Jesus created me he had a purpose for me and I am trying to understand and fully grasp everything that Jesus created me to do Uh, you read Psalm 139 and you see like oh my gosh I know the plans that I have I thought of these thoughts for you before you were in the womb I fashioned you together I gave you your gifts what is that for you and so uh, 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 we're going to jump into our text Uh, here's what's happening The theme of what Jesus is teaching is being a child of God. And the privilege of being a child of God. You'll remember last week, if you were here, uh, Jesus is teaching on this subject. And here in chapter 18, the theme hasn't changed. Still the same subject. Last week we looked, the tax collectors came along to pay the temple tax, right? And they came to Peter and they said, hey, does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter goes, yes. And then after he said it, he goes, I should have asked first. And so then he runs to Jesus. Jesus, do we pay the temple tax? Jesus says, very interesting answer. Instead of answering him directly, he asked him a question. He says, Peter, I have a question for you. The kings of the earth, we looked at this last week, the kings of the earth, do they collect taxes from their children or from strangers? And Peter says, well, from strangers, of course. Then Jesus said, then the children are what? Free, free. And Jesus is teaching us something. He's trying to get us to understand the privilege of being a child of God. The temple is yours. Not just the temple. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof. You see, if you are a child of God, if you are uh, uh, a child of the king, then you belong in the kingdom. And the kingdom is yours. And if the kingdom is yours, 
Everything is yours. And here he's trying to get us to understand the depths of that. So with that, let's jump in. Uh, let's, uh, uh, let's take a look. Chapter 18, let's pray as we do. Lord, we know that you have a plan for our life. Lord, we know that you had a purpose when you created us. Oh, Lord, we know that that purpose centers deeply on our relationship with you and flows out of our relationship with you. Lord, help us now open our eyes that we might see the wondrous things that are in your word, that we might grasp and understand your hope and your calling upon our life, that we might walk in it by faith and watch you bring it into fruition. Lord, you're amazing. We can't wait to watch you do it. Speak to our hearts now. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Chapter 18. At that time, at what time? At the same time Jesus had just taught them about the story that we talked about, then the sons are free. Same subject, same teaching, same uh, lesson. Uh, Jesus didn't know that there was going to be a chapter break right there. Well, I guess he did, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, there shouldn't be a chapter break there. It's the same theme, in other words. Um, at that time, uh, the time where Jesus was teaching that, that... <clears throat> The disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Very interesting question, uh, especially in light of what's been happening. Jesus has taught now four times since chapter 16, verse 7, four times in this time that we're talking about right here about his death, about his being betrayed about him being beaten and murdered and rising again on the third day, about him being uh, betrayed by a, you know, and, 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 and uh, crucified by the uh, Romans and by the religious leaders. And, and here, look what they're asking, look what they're wondering. Uh, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they were looking for an answer, right? They're, uh, I'm sure Peter was probably hoping to say, well, that would be you, Peter. That would be you, of course. Uh, and what's incredible to look at is, is when he says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're not even asking like Moses or Elijah or that kind of thing. They're asking what? Who's the greatest what? Among us. Uh, surely we're the greatest there is. And uh, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, uh, bit of a problem. Uh, verse 2, then Jesus called a little child to him, and he set him in the midst of them. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are, say this word with me, what word? Converted. Interesting. Unless you are converted and become as little children, plural, you will by no means, read this next word, actually circle this next word. What's the next word? enter you won't enter the kingdom of heaven they're talking about the greatest what's jesus talking about entering enter interesting unless you're converted and become as little children you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven we're going to camp out here for a little while there is some depth I hope that you can stay tuned in because there's some rewards that are there if you can. Uh, here, right off the bat, well, we see some things, don't we? We see the disciples and we see something about them. What are they thinking about? What are they going after? What are they pursuing? Jesus has just told them four times in a very short period that he's going to die. But don't worry, your sons. And what are they worried about? Not Jesus' death. Not being sons, what are they worried about? Who's the greatest? And right out of the gate, we see the disciples' selfishness is astonishing. Just astonishing. But the grace and mercy of Jesus is even more astonishing. Uh, Jesus looks at them and they're, they're arguing. Uh, which of you, you know, what, he knows they're arguing. Uh, one of the other gospels tells us there was actually, you know, a pretty good argument going on about it. And Jesus knew it was happening. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. Here's the question. Why are they arguing who's the greatest? 
Why would we argue such a thing? What is going on? What is the source? What's happening inside of them that is making them want to be the greatest? What's going on? Pride. Interesting. Where does that come from? What's going on that's making them want to be the greatest, to be better than each other? What's causing that? Think it through. Let me hear some answers. I want to hear out loud. Ego. ego. Okay. What's driving the ego? Great answer. Keep it coming. What's driving the ego? <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, you teach it. You better say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Score the goal. Uh, no, you teach a kindergartner soccer and you're like, oh, you, you know, and you let him get the ball by you. Go, oh, why? Because you're not competing with them. Why not? Because you're not insecure about them. You're secure in who you are. You're not. But among each other, what do we do? We try to, we try to win. We try to elevate ourselves. We try to be the prettiest. We try to be the strongest. We try to be the richest. We try to be the smartest. We try to be the most powerful and the most eloquent, the most, a lot of things. Why? Why? Where does it come from? It comes from where? Insecurity. Insecurity. Interesting. And Jesus' subject? Oh, the privilege of being a child of God. When you understand the privilege of being a child of God, guess what you're not going to be doing? Arguing about or trying to be or trying to show who's the prettiest, who's the greatest, who's the smartest, who's the strongest. Jesus is trying to bring us to something. Here's another question. If trying to be the greatest stems off of insecurity, why do we all have this insecurity? He said, I don't know, man. I came to church this morning. I wanted a donut and a cup of coffee. <laughs> By the way, Common Grounds, our don our donut, our, our, we're, we're doing it again. Yeah, praise the Lord. I, for one, was really happy. I got my coffee this morning, and I spilt it right on the Common Grounds table. Uh, so I'll just make it more work for him. But, but really glad to have the donuts and coffee back. Stick around after church. You can have some. But anyway, back to our study. Why are we all insecure? And we are. Do you know why we make these little shrines for ourselves on Instagram and all social media? Because we want to be, because we're insecure. We want to look better. Why is it then that we're all insecure? Someone tell me why. Give me some thoughts. We are insecure because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that we were created for. You see, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden dwelling in the fullness of a relationship with God and they were clothed with his righteousness, with his glory. And they sinned and they fell short and we have been painfully aware and insecure ever since. And because of that insecurity, we do a myriad of things to try to elevate ourselves, to try to cover our nakedness through clothes or through cars or through the biggest office or the most money or the biggest house or the nicest figure or whatever and all of it stems from where from insecurity from insecurity the privilege of being a child of God Jesus has great compassion on us isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples here why doesn't he well here's why he knows their frame he knows they're insecure he knows why they're doing what they're doing. And may I share something with you? Jesus doesn't rebuke them because he's out and about to save them. And what he's trying to teach them about being a son of God, what he was trying to teach them about the temple tax and the sons are free, had nothing to do with temple tax and had everything to do with sonship. That we might know who we are. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. Uh, Jesus doesn't condemn, he builds. I am so thankful. 
Oh, the glorious liberty of the children of God, the freedom that we have, the beauty of the gospel. How refreshing that Jesus comes along. He's not against us. He's for us. He wants to build us. I sin and fall short all the time. I can so relate with the Apostle Paul as he writes chapter 7 of Romans. That what I want to do, that's not what I end up doing. That what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Uh, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of death? I want to be nice and selfless, and, and instead I'm greedy and, you know, trying to... Oh, Lord, please forgive me. And here's what Romans 8 says after that big dilemma in Romans 7. That what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. That what I don't... That what I want to do, I don't do. Here's what he says. In light of all that, in light of that struggle, in light of that problem, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, how beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't condemn them here. Instead, he builds them and he's going to teach them about what it means to be a son. What it means to be a child of God. And this isn't an anomaly. This is how Jesus went all the time. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Oh, do you remember the story? How many times has she been married? Five. How many times has she been divorced? Five. Who is she living with now? Forget marriage. Too many attorneys. Too expensive. I'll just live with a guy. And Jesus comes to her. And here's what John chapter 4 is. What in the heck is wrong with you, woman? Why have you been divorced and married so many times? Did Jesus ever say that? No. He comes to her and he says, I know what it is. You're insecure. You're looking for identity in something that will not bring it. You can't get that identity in a relationship with a man. You can get that identity from me. And here's his words. If you knew the gift of God and who it was who was standing here with you, he would give you living water, satisfying your soul, overflowing, no longer searching for your identity, no longer searching for significance, no longer looking for security. You would find it in me and you would have it to overflowing and you wouldn't be arguing about who the greatest, who's the greatest. And this is just who he is. It's what he does. Jesus doesn't want to condemn us. He wants to save us. And that is the beauty of Jesus. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you are missing out on being in the family of God and having his fatherhood over your life. It's amazing. Jesus has been teaching the disciples that they're the sons of God and he's continuing in it. And when we understand this, we don't need to be greater than our buddy. And the disciples are arguing who among them is going to be the greatest. And they go and they ask Jesus. And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great in the kingdom. Uh, Nor does Jesus say there's no such thing as greatness in the kingdom. By the way, how many of you think there's there's such a thing as greatness in the kingdom of God? How many of you think there is such a thing? How many of you don't think there's such a thing? Okay. Okay. Is anybody even listening, right? (laughs) I'm trusting that you're just not sure which way to answer. Uh, Here's some really good news. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for seeking greatness in the kingdom. Do you know why? Because we should be seeking greatness in the kingdom. That's God's will for us. You were created to be something great in the kingdom of God. You were created to be a builder of men and women, to be a a leader in your community, in your workplace, in your sphere of influence. You were created to be a child of God, and God wants to say, that's my boy, I'll use him. That's my daughter, I'll use them. You are a light in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the one I want to use. Yes, you should be great in God's kingdom, and you should be seeking it. When Paul says, I I want to lay hold of all that Christ laid hold of me. Oh, I assure you that was something great that God had planned for Paul. And you are no difference. Yeah, but he was an apostle. You are no different. God's calling on your life is significant. And oh, that we would grasp. Oh, that we would understand what is the height, what is the depth, what is the width, what is the breadth of God's love and plan for our life that we might rise to the occasion and experience and embrace and see it and begin to walk in it that we might be the sons and daughters that Jesus created us to be. It's not wrong 
to be great in the, in, in the kingdom. In fact, we should be seeking greatness in the kingdom. Uh, we should desire that. The apostle Paul did. Uh, <clears throat> we have to realize, though, that desiring that requires something. Paul would say, I discipline my body. I bring it under subjection. That I might be useful in the kingdom. You see, there's differences in the kingdom. Uh, uh, and it requires some things. We have to have some character. There's a few weeks ago we learned that disciples couldn't cast out the demon, right? And uh, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus said what? This kind comes not out but by what? By prayer and fasting. And what he was saying, what we learned, what we studied, he's saying, hey, there's certain things that God wants to use you in, but you have to have spiritual disciplines in order to be used that way. Because if you don't have them, you, you, you won't rise to the occasion when it happens. Let me illustrate. Someone might come to you and they might, you know, say some bad things about you. Is that me? Um, they might say some bad things about you and your flesh, what is your flesh going to want to do? You're going to want to give it right back and show them who's the greatest, right? I mean... That's what we want to do. And sometimes we have to deny ourselves, think on it for a while, pray on it for a while so that we know how to respond properly. And if we don't have that spiritual discipline, we won't be able to be used in that capacity. And it's so important that we hold on to these things. And so uh, Jesus didn't shame them for wanting to be great in the kingdom. No rebuke at all. Instead, Jesus is going to tell them how to be great in the kingdom. But before he does, he says, first, we better talk about entering the kingdom. Before we talk about greatness in the kingdom, we have to talk about entering the kingdom. And that's what he does in verse 3. He says, unless you are converted and become as a little child, we can't even enter the kingdom. Will you put that slide up for me? Unless we are converted and become as a little child, we cannot enter the kingdom. What is Jesus saying in that? Converted. Converted. Yeah, there's that moment. It's a work of God where God gets a hold of us. We sense his calling. We know that we're a sinner. We feel him calling us to himself. And we just say, Jesus, I need you. Would you save me? And we're converted. And we become as little children. Look what he says. Interesting analogy. The reason that we must enter the kingdom is because we're born outside of the kingdom. We're not all in the kingdom. I'm sorry about all the popping. Is that driving you guys nuts? I'm going to unhook one time. Can you mute me for a second, please? All right, hook me back up again. All right, how are we doing? Am I on? Yeah. All right, let's try this again. Uh, we've been born outside of the kingdom. And we've been sinning and sinning gloriously from birth. And the reason is we have been born with a sin nature. Or in other words, it's our nature to sin. And we have to be born into the kingdom we have to be born again Nicodemus a religious leader came to Jesus and said Jesus I see that you're a great teacher oh my gosh how do you do these things and what must I do to and here's what Jesus said Jesus said unless a man is what born again he cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven uh, can't see the kingdom of heaven, can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, most people don't believe this. People in the world don't believe this. They think, hey, I think I'm a good person. And I think when I stand before God, God's going to look at all the things I did. And I think I've done more good than bad. And I think he's going to say, well, hey, come on in. You've done a good, good job. He's going to, you know, kind of weigh everything out. And, and can I tell you something? You couldn't be more wrong. Do you want to know? This is going to surprise you. Even you as Christians, this is going to surprise you. When we stand before God, you're not on trial. Did you know that? You're not on trial. Do you know why? This might surprise you. At the end of your life, when you stand before God, you're not on trial. The trial is already over. It's already done. 
Here's the conclusion of the trial. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Trial is over. We will stand before God and there will be a great white throne judgment. That's not a trial. That's just a sentencing. And we covered that in Revelation chapter 20, if you want to look it up. The great white throne judgment. Uh, we just covered it. Um, that's just the sentencing. The trial has already been done. Here's what Jesus said about it. John chapter 12 on your screens. Let me hear you read this. This is Jesus speaking uh, as he's making his way to the cross. Read what he says. Now the time of judgment for the world has come. Let's stop there. The time when God judged the world was at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let's go on. Satan, the prince of this world, shall be, future tense, cast out. And when I am lifted up, meaning on the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. On the cross, the world was judged as a sinner. And Jesus was judged as the one who would take the punishment of all the sin of all who come to him. And he says, if I go to the cross, I will then draw all people to myself. Not all will come, but I'm going to draw all people to myself. And so the judgment has already happened. Now the time of the judgment of this world has come. The world has been judged. Now we're just awaiting sentencing. And so uh, you're not on trial. The trial is already over. God has declared that you're a sinner. You're an enemy of God. And uh, the, 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 the judgment has been made. And here's what he said. You're either in Jesus Christ or you're guilty of treason against God. And Jesus said, I'm going to draw all men to myself. Whoever, can, whoever wants to come to me can. Look what else Jesus said in John chapter 12, uh, verse... Uh, never mind. Um, so here Jesus is teaching them and he says, hey, make sure that you enter the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he brings an infant, a toddler to him. Uh, the Greek word is... Uh, Padilla, uh, it's an it's a infant of like 11 months, 13 months, it's a toddler. If you went into our toddler room, that's who Jesus chose to bring to him. He's saying you have to be born again just like this child. Uh, and here's that verse I was going to give you, sorry, it's John 1.10. Uh, uh, Jesus wants to draw us into in himself. Look what he says. He came into the world, read with me, he came into the world, he created. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Wow. He tries to draw us to himself, and all who will receive his drawing, he gives them the right to become the children of God. Let's go on. They are reborn. There it is. There is a conversion not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or a human plan but with a birth that comes from God I like this verse I love how real the Bible is two ways children come into this earth one is from human passion and one is from a human plan right uh, some of us were just conceived by human passion no plan whatsoever that would be me uh, some of us were Brought into the world by a human plan. We want 2.3 children. We're going to have 2.3 children. And... <laughs> but those who are born again aren't from a human plan or human passion. They're from what? They're from a birth that comes from God. That God had planned out before you were created. And he said, I want to bring you to myself. I want to awaken you to my love for me. I want you to experience my calling on your life. I want you to be aware that you're a sinner. I want you to experience the abundance of grace of my forgiveness. And I want you to begin to receive and understand what it means to be a child of God. Oh, the glorious privilege of being a child of God. Just amazing. Just amazing. And we're born again by faith in Jesus, not by being a good person, not by good deeds, not by self-realization, not by becoming spiritual. No, Jesus says we enter in the kingdom by becoming a little child who says, Dad, I can't do it. 
I'm a sinner. Jesus, please save me. And he were born again. And it's all Jesus' work, not ours. We're converted. Oh, I remember the moment it happened for me. I've never been the same. And there's nothing special about me. That's what he does on his people. He moves us from being God's enemy to God's child in a moment. And it's glorious. And then he says, now learn to walk with me. And he's building them. He's teaching them how to be great in the kingdom. And after he talks about entering the kingdom, he now answers their question about how to be great in the kingdom. And here's what he says. Look what he says. He says, anyone who becomes humble as a little child will be great in the kingdom. I want you to think about this. They're asking, what's the question they're asking? Who can be great where? In the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has lived in eternity past in heaven. Jesus created heaven. And he could have used any illustration to illustrate how to be great in the kingdom of heaven. He could have used any illustration. And yet, what illustration did he use? Taking a little toddler into his lap and saying, having humility like this toddler. What is Jesus teaching us? Well, here's the lesson that we want to learn, that we want to hold on to. Spiritual maturity comes through the gate of humility. That's what Jesus is teaching. Spiritual maturity or spiritual greatness, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, it comes through the, the gate of humility. Uh, the humility of a child. What does that mean? Well, a toddler is fully dependent upon the goodness of his parents to exist. He looks to his parents for everything. He looks to his parents to provide for him, for, for him. He never even thinks about it. He just knows mom and dad are good. I'm going to get a meal. Every time I'm hungry, they give me something. He looks to his parents for everything, to love him, to protect him, to nourish him, to teach him right and wrong, to build his character, to develop him, and to lead him on the right paths of life. No, Johnny, share, share. Don't say mine, right? This morning, I was talking to little Hudson. As Hudson's playing around here, as his mom and dad are on the worship team, uh, Kyle and Sarah, you know, leading worship, and the kids are, their kids are so good. And little Hudson, I'm talking to him, he's got this cool new little jacket on, you know, a little flannel, he looks so cute, oh my gosh. And I'm going, Hudson, buddy, did you get a new jacket? And Hudson's kind of shy, he's putting his head down, he's got his hair all spiked up for church, looks just so cute, oh my gosh. And you know what his mom says, you know what Sarah says? Hudson, look at him in the eyes. Turn towards him. Look at him. What is she doing? She's teaching him. This is how you be a man, Hudson. This is the right path. And a toddler is fully dependent upon his parents to teach them the right path. And Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom? Here you go. Here you go. How refreshing. Just humble yourself. I can do that. He didn't say, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, you have to say, learn these seven mantras, and then you have to climb the mountains of Tibet on your knees until they bleed, and then you have to go hang out with Mother Teresa and feel the children of, feed the children of Calcutta. Uh, no, 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 no. You just have to be dependent upon me. Wow, it's within reach. How amazing, how refreshing. Let me tell you what that does not mean. Jesus said, humble yourself as a child. Humbling yourself as a child does not mean acting childish. It does, it does not mean acting without wisdom and discernment. I see this a lot in the Christian church. Uh, this so-called having childlike faith means I don't have a plan. I don't have any direction. I'm just aimlessly going, going through life without taking any responsibility. That is not what it means. Sometimes I talk with Christians who are not taking proper responsibility for their lives. And they have financial problems. Or they have marriage problems. Or they have uh, family problems. Or friend problems. Or character problems. And they'll say, well, I'm just trusting God. 
And what they mean is, I'm not doing anything at all. I'm just trusting God that it's all going to work out. Can I tell you something? That is not trusting God. That is trusting magic. And magic is not real. Trusting God means doing what little Hudson did when his mom told him something. He says, oh, I think mom always does good for me. Okay, I'll look, I'll learn, I'll walk. That's what it means to be trusting God. Big difference. Don't be so spiritual to say, I'm doing absolutely nothing. I'm trusting God. You're trusting magic. And again, magic is what? It's not real. It's not real. That's right, Jasmine. It's not real. That is not childlike. That is childish. And that's not what Jesus is asking. What Jesus is asking, he's saying a faith that looks to its father for guidance and direction on everything. Childlike faith is not unintelligent faith. Childlike faith is dependent faith. And there's a big difference. It's faith that listens to God's word and seeks it out and looks for the Father's voice and looks for the Father's face and looks for the Father's will by reading scripture, by studying the Bible, taking on Jesus' ways and learning of him and finding out his yoke is easy, his burden is light. It's an amazing path and it brings abundant fruit. It's faith that says God's way is better than my way and therefore I will deny my own desire so that I might walk in God's path for me. The, di- the disciples, they had the wrong view of greatness, didn't they? What was their view of greatness, by the way? Let me hear from you. What was, what was the disciples' view of greatness when they answered this question? Excuse me, when they asked this question, what were they looking for? What would greatness look like for them? Powerful, yeah. Uh, What else? Yeah, sitting on a throne. They They thought greatness was a display of power. They thought greatness was recognition. They thought greatness was impressing others. They thought greatness was wealth. They thought greatness was having the best body. They thought greatness was winning a dispute and showing everybody your intellectual prowess. They thought greatness was being an amazing uh, orator that people just said, wow, or whatever, right? They thought greatness was a shrine on social media that shows how amazing your life was. That's what they thought greatness was. And Jesus then redirects them and realigns them and he shows them a proper definition of what greatness is. Greatness is humbly trusting God as your father. Greatness is being a child of God and knowing what that means. The universe is yours. Greatness is having humility to say, Lord, not my way, but your way and being a servant of all. And when you have that, you will not be searching for greatness trying to score a goal against other kindergartners. Does that make sense? And now he moves us. Now that he has defined what greatness is, now he's going to illustrate some things for us. Look where he takes us in verse 5. We're going to go faster through these next sections, but I wanted to build that. Are you tracking with me? Is this speaking to you? Are you connecting with the depth of what Jesus is teaching? This is good stuff. Verse 5. Whoever then receives one of these excuse me, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. What little child was he talking about? Not the little child sitting on his lap. What little child was he talking about? The one who humbles himself like this little child. Are you with me? Whoever receives one of my children who humbles himself and and comes to me in humility, look what he says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, and again, he's not talking about the child on his lap, he's talking about his kids, who believe in me, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. 
For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. You know what I hear, see here? You know what I wrote in my Bible right here on the bonus verse? Wow, Jesus loves his kids, us. He's saying, you love one of my kids? Guess what you're doing? You're loving me. But you hurt one of my kids, guess what you're doing? You're in big trouble. You see, what Jesus is saying here is two-part. There's a two-part message. He's saying, you bless one of my kids, you bless me. You hurt one of my kids, it'd be better for you if a millstone was wrapped around your neck. Hey, that's incredible love. That's incredible privilege to be one of God's kids and to be loved that way. Big privileges in being a child of God, man. Incredibly blessed. And as a father, I can relate to it. I can totally relate to it. Because as a father of four, when my kids were little, I remember when like Ryan would get mad at Jordan or, or Nathan would get mad at one or whatever. You know, you know what I mean. There's a problem. And they're like mad at him. What would I make him do? I'd say, hey, are you mad at your brother? Yes. He did this to me. Go hug your brother. I'm not going to hug my brother. Yes, you are. Go hug your brother right now. No, I don't want to hug Go hug your brother right now or you're going to have to deal with me. Okay, I'll hug my brother. And they'd go hug their brother and what would they do? They'd do the big hug and next thing you know, I'd make them hold it for a few seconds. Next thing you know, guess what's happening? What are they doing? They're cracking up. They're cracking up. WrestleMania, that's right, Noah. WrestleMania. They're cracking up and that bond is back. And you know what? It's like, yeah, love that. You just bless me, son. You just did it as if you did it to me. And that's what Jesus is saying. On the other hand, someone would hurt my kids. Even now, someone touches my daughter. Oh, man. Right? And there's, there's, people, there's people in this church right now who have been mentors for some of my kids. And, and counselors for some of my kids. And you know what? Oh, they're near and dear to my heart. And here, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, if you, you take you, you receive one of these little ones, you've done it to me. Jesus watches how we treat his kids, and he takes it personally. Jesus would say, he'd say, hey, at the end of time, uh, when you stand before me and you get your rewards, there's going to be someone that he's going to say, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. They're going to make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he's going to say, I saw you for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was without a bed and you gave me a bed to sleep on. I was in the prison and you came and visited me. And what do the people say? When did we feed you? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we visit you in prison? And Jesus' answer in as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And if you're a mother or a father or a grandparent, you get that, man. You get that. You love those who love your kids. And that's what Jesus, uh, that's how he's seeing it. So here's, here's where the rubber meets the road now. I want you to do something that you normally wouldn't do in church. I want you to think of a Christian who bugs the snot out of you. I want you to think of a brother or sister that you have a rub with. It might be a parent. It might be a literal brother or sister. It might be a family member. It might be me for crying out loud. I hope not. But if it is, write my name down. I want you to write the name down right now of whoever it is you have a rub with. Don't say, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. No, no, I want you to literally write it down. Quit being so stubborn. Literally, write it down, right? <laughs> Humble yourself as a little child and literally, literally write it down, okay? <clears throat> okay, you got a name down? You got your name down? That person is a son or daughter of Jesus. And Jesus says, look at verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever caused that one to stumble, that's bad news, right? Bad news. And really, that's just why it's so important that we forgive each other. 
that we serve each other and that we bless each other because Jesus loves them. And if you have a brother who is not, you're not on good terms with, man, make it right. And you say, but they wronged me. You don't understand. They hurt me. You don't know what they did to me. I get it. I get it. Uh, I, I, I'm a human too, man. I experience it. Uh, Peter, he understood this teaching. We're going to look at it next week. Peter's going to come to Jesus and go, okay, I understand what you're asking here in this passage. It's hard. How many times do I got to do this? Peter's going to ask. Seven times? And what was the answer Jesus gave? Seven times 70. We're going to look at that next week. Yeah, Jesus says, I want you to do this. Why? Because this is how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. This is how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jot this down. Verse 5 is the litmus test of verse 4. Verse 4, we read it, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We say, oh, yes, yes, mm, yes, yes, humble myself, I'll be humble. Yes, yes. I agree, yes. And now we look at verse 5. Receive a little one in my name. Well, not that little one. I don't like that little one. Then you haven't done verse 4. Go hug your brother. I don't want to hug him. They, they stole my toy, right? Go hug your brother and watch how God uses you to be a builder in the kingdom. Jesus says, verse 7, the world is filled with horrible offenses, but woe to the man who brings him. Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom, be a builder of men, not an offender of men. Woe to the man who brings them. Isn't it interesting that the world longs for justice? We just long for, there's so many offenses in this world. The world longs for justice. We just want peace on earth. How many of you here want peace on earth? All of us. All. Why is it so elusive? Why throughout the history of mankind have we not had it? There's a starvation problem on this earth. There's not a food problem on this earth. There's a homeless problem on this earth. There's not a housing problem on this earth. You want to know something sad? There's more homes sitting empty than there are homeless. That's a fact. Why is it so elusive? Here's why. Because we are desperately wicked. The Bible, the theological phrase is called total depravity. And we have to be born again. And we all know that love is the answer. Problem? We don't know what love is. That's why you cannot obey the second commandment until you first obey the first commandment. You cannot know how to love your neighbor until you first have no other gods before me. Because until you understand what real love is, you'll go about loving the wrong way. Have you ever seen a parent who thought loving their child was not telling them no? Not giving them any guidance, just letting them do what they wish? I just want to love them. Okay, big problem. You don't have the first commandment down. And so we have this problem. That's why the world is plagued with sin. The world longs for justice, but man, uh, it's, it's evasive to us. So many injustices. And Jesus acknowledges that. Jesus acknowledges that this world is unjust and a cruel place. But he says, woe to those who bring the injustices. Think about some of the big injustices in this world. Uh, what would you think of? I think of human trafficking. Oh my gosh, what a horrible offense. I think of the porn industry. That the average age of people being introduced to pornography is now, guess, guess what age? 11 years old. Woe to those who cause such offenses. It would be better if there was a millstone wrapped around their neck. I think about these priests 
who are sexually abusing these children. It would be better if there was a millstone wrapped around their neck. I think about these archdioceses who know these problems and just move these priests from place to place. It would be better if there was a millstone wrapped around their neck. I think about Iran that is just hell-bent on wiping out every Jew on the face of the earth. It would be better if a millstone was wrapped around their neck. I think about these prosperity teachers in Christian, so-called Christian churches that are fleecing the flock, trying to get them to love money and believe that God wants them to be rich so that they can fill their own pockets. And I say it would be better if a millstone was wrapped around their neck. Not me saying, Jesus saying. Jesus, the Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And have you ever seen a day where that is more prevalent than right now? We promote and applaud things that are deplorably evil and things that are godly. We suppress and squish. squish. I found it very interesting that President Biden issued executive orders this week forcing schools to allow transgender students to do whatever they want at school. A boy can say he's a girl and now go play on the girls' softball team and use the girls' showers and the school can do nothing. Was that really important to do on your first week of office? Well, you'd be better that a millstone was wrapped around your neck. That was the IOU, by the way, to those who propelled him into office. I find it interesting that on his first day of office, an executive order was issued on abortion. Why so eager to abort babies? Do you know that we're now prompt, uh, pr promoting and paying for the abortions of millions of babies at home and abroad to the tune of $9.5 billion with a B dollars. The world is plagued with horrible offenses, but woe to the man that brings them. The earth longs for justice, and it's elusive because of our depravity. And the, the, the way that we start to change this is we get born again. And we go from being totally depraved to being led by the Spirit of God. Jesus will change this earth. That's what the millennial kingdom is all about. And we studied that in, uh, in Revelation. And you can listen to that. Jesus is going to set up the millennial kingdom. Uh, he's going to restore justice on earth. It was lost by Adam. It's going to be restored by Jesus Christ. And there is going to be a literal millennial reign on this earth where righteousness will be the law of the land. And oh, I can't wait for that day. But until then, here's what Jesus says. Take sin seriously. And do not offend your brother. And be careful. Uh, don't wink at sin. Here's what he says. Take sin seriously. And uh, beware of the ravaging effects of sin. Let's look at how he says it in verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, what does he say? Cut it off. You know what that means? Take it seriously. Cast it from you. For it is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into everlasting fire. Everlasting fire there means eternal hell. Jesus taught a lot about it because it's real. Just like he knew what heaven was, he knows what eternal hell is and he doesn't want us to go there. And he's saying, cut it off, man, cast it off. You know what needs to be cut off right now? Public school system needs to be cut off. It is too perverse. It is beyond repair. It needs to be cut off. It needs total reform. And if God's people would just stand up and say, we're cutting off public school, there would have to be a change in this nation. And I don't want to get too political, but I don't want to be silent. We need to take the ravaging effects of sin seriously. Uh, let's look at uh, the, the next verse. He says it again. If your eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. 
and cast it far from you. For it's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire. He talks about hell again. Now here's what he's saying. Take seriously the ravaging effects of sin. Take it seriously. We must take sin seriously. And let me give you an example. I could choose many. I'm going to choose an easy one to illustrate it. I'll choose sexual sin. We must take sexual sin seriously. We must realize the ravaging effects it has. Because we're prone to wink at it. Think it's not that big a deal. Not that big a deal. Just an adult movie. Not that big a deal, just sexting. Not that big of a deal, it's just adultery. Not that big a deal, it's just gay marriage. Not that big a deal, it's just gay parenting. Not that big of a deal, it's just a transgendered lifestyle. Not that big a deal, it's just pedophilia. No, no, no. It is that big a deal. And it is destroying lives, it is destroying families, and it is destroying our nation. And Jesus' instruction is, be great in the kingdom of heaven and receive those and build up those and cast off the things that are offending and stumbling and destroying people. Take action is what Jesus is saying. I use sexual sin as an illustration, but uh, we must take all of our sin seriously or it will destroy us. Our pride, our selfishness, our apathy, our laziness, all of these things are irresponsibility. We must take them seriously. Look what Jesus says, verse 10. We'll wrap up with this, this next passage. Verse 10, take heed that you despise that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who are the little ones? The children of God. The children of God. They might be lost right now. They might be deep in sin right now. One of these little ones might be a thief on the cross that we might despise. And Jesus says, be careful. Do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, interesting, look at this. What's the next two words? They're angels. Interesting. God's kids have angels watching over them. Very interesting. I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That is amazing love. That is an amazing privilege of being a child of God. You've got angels always reporting into God, hey, Dave's down there. He's going through this. This is happening. This is happening. Blah, blah, blah. And the Holy Spirit then comes along and says, here's the guidance you need for what you're going through. Wow. That's an amazing privilege of being a child of God. And look at this. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was what? lost and broken and hurting and insecure and trying to look for security in all the wrong places. The Son of Man hasn't come to cast off these little ones, but to save these little ones. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 to go to the mountains? Look at that. To go to the mountains. To seek the one that is straying. That's God's love for you. Some of you right now bound in addiction. Some of you right now bound in anger. Some of you right now just struggling over emptiness and loneliness. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'd go to the mountains and back to bring you back to me. Come to him. Trust him. Let him lead you as a parent. Humble yourself before him and watch him build you. Verse 13, and he, if he should find him, he, uh, surely I say he rejoices more than over, the, uh, over that sheep, than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, 
It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, there it is again, that one of these little ones should perish. So therefore, receive them. Receive them. Who's that name you wrote down? Receive them. Be great in the kingdom by being a builder of them. Be great in the kingdom by trusting that God to just say, hey, go hug your brother. I know he, he, he fouled you, but you will be great in the kingdom and I'll pour more into you when you do, right? Pursue them, understand them, build them up, show them God's grace, show them God's love, and you will be great in the kingdom. Oh, that we might embrace all that Jesus called us to when he called us to himself. That we might walk in the fullness thereof of it. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come back. We can close in song. I want you to just think about what we've heard. Guess who you are? You are a child of the king. And if you are a child of the king, you live in the kingdom. And if you live in the kingdom... The kingdom is yours. The universe is yours. All of it is yours. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, humble yourself and let him lead, guide, and direct you to be a builder in his kingdom, one who goes and seeks and restores and cuts out sin, builds this kingdom to the glory of Jesus Christ. The amazing privilege of being a child of God. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.